Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast about how people have applied ideas from outside software to software. Episode 15, Mark Seaman on Blindsight and Thinking Fast and Slow. Before I get to the interview proper, just a note on the structure. I deleted a couple of sections that were mostly me rambling on. I'll turn both of them into properly scripted episodes someday. Another topic was some programming language geekery that I'm guessing will have a smaller audience. I've moved that to the very end as an appendix. I haven't tried to paper over the discontinuities and rearrangement, just adding the usual bass riff between sections. I don't think that will be a problem. I hope that won't be a problem. Onward. So today is a first for the podcast. Someone other than me will tell us about a book, two books actually, that have influenced him. Mark Seaman is a prolific blogger, Stack Overflow contributor, speaker, and book author. His most recent book is Code That Fits in Your Head. And from what I've been reading on Twitter, it's been getting reviews that make me, frankly, jealous. Uh, are there, Mark, are there any highlights of, of you that I've missed? Uh, no, I think uh, that's that's fine. You know, I've been I've been doing this for a couple of decades now, so um, uh, that you could say lots of things, but you know, whatever floats your boat is is fine with me. So, what's a a bit of your history in the industry? Um, so um, yeah, so so your listeners should probably know that I I started out being a Microsoft uh, you know IT person actually and and got into programming that that way so I've been you know always associated with the Microsoft world of programming um, so so that's where you know a lot of people know me from but I try to look beyond. Uh, you know, the Microsoft technology and the Microsoft stack. So even though I'm a C-sharp developer and an F-sharp developer, I've also taught myself or, you know, via books, you know, uh, you know taught myself Haskell programming, um, which is, you know, way beyond that normal, you know, Microsoft stack. So I try to look beyond. I've read a lot of, you know, patents books by, you know, Kent Beck and Robert C. Martin and Martin Fowler, those, those kinds of things as well. So I think I have, I hope I have an outlook that is a little bit more broad than your usual Microsofty. Okay. Uh, the two books that Mark wants to talk about are Blindsight, a science fiction novel by Peter Watts, and Thinking Fast and Slow by psychologist and economist Daniel Kahneman, one of the pioneers of behavioral, behavioral economics to the point where he shared the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics. I've read both of the books, Blindsight, uh, more than once. And I can see a connection between them, but I'm excited to see if my guess at the connection is correct. Uh, because Blindsight is probably already the all-time winner, past and future, for oddly influencing books that are going to be covered in this podcast, let's, let's start with that. Peter Watts is a hard science fiction writer who used to be a professor of marine biology. I've read everything he's written, even the video game novelization, but he's definitely not for everyone. There's a blurb on one of his books from Peter's, Peter Nichols that reads, quote, Whenever I feel my will to live becoming too strong, I read some Peter Watts. Charlie Strauss described Blindsight as, quote, a first contact with Alien story from the point of view of a zombie post-human crewman aboard a starship captained by a vampire, which is an accurate description, though makes it seem a little less weird than it actually is. 
so, Mark, would you like to summarize and tell us why it resonated with you? Um, yeah, so... Well, one I'd thing, if to. if you're going to go where I think you will, mm-hmm. I have a feeling spoilers are unavoidable, yes. so so feel free. Yeah, so yeah, so I was definitely wanting to warn the um, the listener about this as well because it's it's a wonderful book. Uh, I, but I think you know it might spoil a little bit of the um, of the excitement if you um, if you already know what the central reveal here is. So if you um, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book and you want to, you should stop right now and uh, and read the book first. So the idea here with this book, the the, the thing that really got me. Um, uh, got me thinking or you know set some gears in motion in my brain is that it's a first contact novel uh, that's that's right and uh, the aliens that uh, we end up meeting in this book are really alien the, the, these are some of the most alien aliens I've ever encountered in a book and one of the main points that that are being made here is that um, it turns out that even though they are uh, intelligent they're actually not sentient uh, so, so the whole point of the book is basically that um, that there's probably a lot of intelligence in the universe, in the galaxy, but the um, all the other intelligences that are out there are basically not sentient, and that means that they are when when they come into contact with human radio signals, uh, they. Just, Start to to, um, to try to decipher what the um, what the human communication is all about, and it it takes uh, it takes them a lot of energy and a lot of effort to actually try to decipher this idea, this notion of sentience that you know is carried along almost like as a virus. Uh, they consider that as, as being a virus in the communication stream that they're you know picking up from the earth, um, which makes them hostile because it's not efficient. So they actually want to wipe out uh, not intelligence as such, and they don't care about humans. Uh, but it's just like they don't like that you know sort of you know noise in the signal. Um, so so the the basic point of the book is that uh, there's this um, there's this attempt to to you know deal with the sentience of humans in a way where you can sort of, if you, if you can re- eradicate the sentience, that's fine. We can actually leave the humans alone, but, but you know, the sentience has to go. Uh, so that's, that's basically the idea. Um, I don't know if you read the book that, that way. Uh, I just reread it, you know, this summer because I knew that I was going to uh, talk to you. And I can't say so much that it's, it's wonderful even for a second read. So even if you know what the idea is, I, I was still, you know, massively entertained at least. Um, Yes, the the so the the big reveal is that there's yeah. there's no I, there's no me inside the aliens. There's no exactly. consciousness, yeah. but they build spaceships and so on and so forth. Uh, exactly, and, yes. And the idea of what consciousness is runs through the book because mm-hmm. all of the characters in the book are in some way in each in a different way post-human in a way yeah. that reflects on um, reflects on consciousness. So all of the characters are very interesting. Yeah. And if you're a fan of the unreliable narrator, yeah. the Siri, I believe, is his name. I hope Siri, that, yeah. Yeah, I hope that doesn't exactly. turn on anybody's devices. But Siri uh, <laughs> yeah. is is both unreliable and he explicitly says in the book that everything he tells us about the other characters is dumbed down and interpreted mm-hmm. for us. So 
That yeah. so it's an interesting book, and and I w- I want to make a note that it is actually free for download on Peter Watts's website. Oh, and I'll now. put a wow. link to that, and and also to Mark's various stuff on the web uh, on, yeah. in the show notes. Um, so besides the don't make first contact with. <laughs> Uh, a non-sentient, unconscious, non-conscious alien race. What conclusions do you draw that might have to do with software? Yeah, so so that's not obvious. I I understand, uh, but but when I read the book the first time around, and I think when is it from? Is it from? It's it's more than fifteen years old now. Isn't I'm it? certain it's from two thousand and six. Um, so I read it around that time, maybe in two thousand and seven, and the. Um, just the the general notion that sentience was you know could be thought of as being decoupled from actual intelligence was really something that you know was a you know that was a revelation for me at that time i must have been around you know 30 35 36 37 so i, I at least i had not encountered that idea before uh, so that really just struck me as being absolutely devastating in a, in a sense but also very very intriguing this this idea that you know you 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 have this you walk around and you have this idea uh, this notion that you there's an eye inside of you and then all of along this book comes around and says well yeah maybe maybe intelligent processing might actually happen even though you're not really aware you know even if you're not self-aware of uh, that processing actually happening um, so that in itself just lingered you know I thought that was very interesting so that really changed my my view of you know some mental processes but I did not really connect that to anything you know having to do with the software at that time um, so that's why I really, that's that's the reason why we now need to go to another one um, mm-hmm. so if we if we um, switch over to um, to thinking fast and slow, then then the connection starts to appear. Don't, do you want to say anything about that before we we do that switch? Uh, no, I think you you know where yeah. you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so the um, so thinking fast and slow, as you you already introduced, this is written by Daniel Kahneman, who's actually an experimental psychologist. He's not really an eco- economist, uh, but he and and his um, his um, collaborator Amos Tversky started this thing called behavioral economics and um, and the book is basically about his all the research it, it's it's like a popular science retelling of a lot of the research that he's he'd been doing over the decades about you know how humans often arrive at irrational decisions and um, and the uh, the thing the fast and slow uh, the reason for that title is that he distinguishes between two uh, mental models or two decision-making models that he calls system one and system two, and um, so so system one is the fast system and system two is the is the uh, is the slow system basically the the fast thinking and the and the slow uh, thinking system, and the um, and the slow thinking system or system two that's the one we are actually aware of. This is where we make deliberate decisions where we, you know, we we think about things and we, we you know we mull things over. Maybe we even sleep on it and we you know get up the day after and think, okay, should I buy that house or should I buy that car, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the all the big decisions that we are aware of are, are often engaging that system too and that's our conscious uh, you know um, 
thought processes. Um, but then there's the system one, and the system one uh, is is a is a part of the brain that makes decisions all the time. But it's not something that we are actually aware of. So it's uh, you can say it, it's it's um, it might just be motor functions like when you're walking down the street talking to a friend. You 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 don't think about you know where you put your feet and if you have to walk around a puddle of water, whatever it is. Um, but um, you know that that your your body and your brain just does that for you, and you're not really aware of it. Um, so the point that he was trying to make, uh, that uh, Daniel Kahneman is trying to make in that book, is that that system actually ends up making a lot of decisions for us. Often those decisions are not very... Um, they're not very precise uh, because that system runs on a heuristic where it's it's more it, you know it's more important for it to actually arrive at a decision fast you know more than that the decision actually is actually always correct you know on on average it might you know lean towards you know making good decisions but the, you know it makes a lot of mistakes along the way and then you can sort of exploit that with various different ex experiments like you know Daniel Kahneman did and then he could uh, you know show that he could influence people's you know um, monetary decisions in various ways that were not rational uh, by phrasing things in different ways and and his you know hypothesis is that this you know system one uh, these this this uh, this uh, thought processes that we are not aware of that they're actually making a lot of the decisions on our behalf even though we don't actually know why that is happening um, so that's when when I started having a little you know light bulb going off in my brain and saying huh that's interesting because if, if we are making more than just you know basic motor functions, but we're actually making you know things where we we assume those decisions were in the realm of the conscious you know rational decision making, but it actually turns out that those decisions, even though some of them might be quite quite complicated, are actually made of you know of, of us unawares that we are actually making it. I was beginning to think, okay, so what actually happens when we're working with code? You know, what happens when we're reading existing code? What happens when we're writing new code? Maybe, um, maybe some of the... Um some of the things that are going on in our brain are actually, you know, going on in our brains even though we're not aware of it. So that's basically the the, the connection that I, that I thought was interesting was that, um, you know, we think we tend to think about you know software development and programming as being this very very um, um, intellectual activity that we engage in where we are very much aware that we are doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but then, when I, but then I thought, well, yes, that is also true. But what if the system one is still always looking at the code, and it might make a lot of decisions? It might, you know, get confused if things are not the way that that it wants things to look like, and it may also, you know, arrive at all sorts of, you know, good or bad decisions on our behalfs, even though we're, you know, we're not rationally arriving at those decisions. It just does that those things so that's what starting me started me on on this whole path uh, towards looking in into okay what actually happens in the brain and how much can we actually trust our you know the rational parts and the you know the self-aware parts of our brains when we're looking at code and what else is there, going on yeah there's a related book that i'll put it in the show note it's a mm -hmm. bit older it's uh by a neuroscientist i believe uh, it's called why choose this book and <laughs> One of, one of the points that he makes in the book is that just sitting around our resting consumption of energy, uh, your mm -hmm. brain consumes 20% of your body's energy. 
yeah. while having 2% of your body's mass. So brains are very expensive, and yes. it's to the brain's advantage to do as little work as possible, mm -hmm. which is why it relies so heavily on heuristics and, and such things. Uh, yes. And getting back to Peter Watts, our they're called scramblers, the aliens. Mm -hmm. Our scramblers have decided that actually all the expense, well, they haven't decided yeah. because they're not sentient, but mm -hmm. all the expense of System 2 is not worth the trouble. So they, yeah. they just work with System 1. Yeah, yeah, that's a good summary. And, and also the point is you know, extending on the line of thought you just lined, uh, you know, lined up there. Um, the, um, there's actually also a passage in, in Kahneman's book that says that you actually consume, the system one consumes a, you know, much fewer calories than system two does, just to make that ex explicitly clear. So, so, um, so the point in the book is that when the scramblers, the aliens, when they, when they try to engage with human communications, um, it, they just expend so much energy trying to because they have to emulate system two in order to understand what's going on, and that mm. just costs them a lot of energy. And that's basically what they don't like about it. If if I wasn't being clear, but that's that's a very good uh, way to um, to summarize that. Yeah, good point. Um, so yeah, so that was basically the the spark. So it's sort of like a two two part spark where the, you know the first the, you have the idea, the seed is planted by. Uh, by blindside and then you know Kahneman comes around and starts talking about okay how many how much of our brains are actually being um, are we, where we are not aware of the decision processes that are going on there and then you know I thought that was interesting and I, I started to look in, into that so so that's that's basically the story and you know I ended up writing a book called Code That Fits in Your Head which sort of like takes that off at some kind of a tangent then um, so I, I thought that was an interesting um, you know at least an interesting influence the, you know, there's lots of other things as well. There's another book, by the way, by um, Feline Hermans called The Programmer's Brain. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about that one. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so, But she works in the University of Utrecht, I think, and she does a lot of, you know, ex practical experimentation with code reading and, uh, you know, also with kids and, and trying to get kids to code and with Scratch and all sorts of things. So she's very interested in those things as well. So she wrote this book called The Programmer's Brain that also talks a lot about, you know, how do we actually read code? And I, I did not read this book until after I'd written my own. Um, and then I was really apprehensive about reading hers because she really knows what mm -hmm. she's talking about. And then what if everything she would be saying would be, what if that would be um, the entire opposite of what I'm saying? But it actually turns out that these things uh, actually go pretty pretty well uh, hand in hand. So uh, so there's, I think I'm, I may be onto something, but you know, lots of other people are onto the same idea. So. Um, so that's that's validation at least. Um, it's promising so far. So I'll put a link to that book as well yeah. in the show notes. So uh, what are some of the things you say in your book? Oh, in my own book. Um, so so what, I, what I tried to do after that was to... Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to give uh, people some heuristics for writing code that is... Um, well, code that fits in your head. The idea is that code should be simple. So... so um, 
so one of the things we know about the the simple system, or at least we can sort of we can there's a um, we can draw a line between the sh the system one, what Daniel Kahneman calls the system one, and then we can draw a line to our short-term memory. It's not quite the same system, but they seem to be somehow connected in a way. And we know from um, so there's this exp it's, um, there's this result from. Um, 1956 called the magical number seven plus minus two, which you know I, I'm sure you have heard about by George Miller, and uh, so the idea there is basically that our short-term memory is very very limited, and then um, uh, the idea here is that when you encounter code and you have to to understand code that's already written and now you have to engage with that code because you need to either understand how it works maybe you want to change it maybe you just want to understand why there's a defect in it you know whatever it is um, you're now engaging with code that you maybe you wrote it six months ago maybe your colleague wrote it uh, but now you have to understand it and and then what you engage in is a is a mental process where you essentially running an emulator in your brain and you're sort of trying you know to pass and and execute or at least emulate, interpret the code that you're looking at in your own head. And uh, as you probably know, when when uh, when code is running, it often depends on state. So now you have to keep state in your head, and your short-term memory can keep track of about seven things. So you know, so if you have more than seven things going on in a piece of code that you're looking at, it becomes really difficult for your short-term memory to keep track of that. Um, so one of the things that I've tried to do with the book and also it's based on you know various different coaching I've been doing with lots of teams earlier on is I'm I'm trying to give people some fairly simple rough uh, you know um mechanisms for quantifying when code starts to become too complicated so basically one of the heuristics that I'm I'm trying to give people is to say well just look at how many how many objects and particularly objects that might change state how many of those are actually you know, in scope and being activated at this point, uh, you know, at, with this code. And, you know, taking all, you know, the surrounding stuff into account, if you have global variables, you need to think about those as well. And basically, if you have much more than six or seven going on, you should probably start to refactor the code in a way so mm -hmm. that you can split it up. Um, so it's, you know, once we arrive at, at a, an idea like that from the position where we've now talked about all of these things, it shouldn't really sound very surprising. Um, but my experience is when I've talked to, you know, various different, uh, you know, professional developers is that, you know, telling them that they, that they can, that they should start to refactor or start to think about design when only seven, seven things are in scope. That is a very radical notion, just in terms mm -hmm. of size, because, you know, most people are used to work with God classes that span, you know, right. hundreds, if not thousands of lines of code. And now I'm basically telling them, yeah, you should probably more look at things that are like 10 or 20 lines of code. That's a, that's a big step. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I know <laughs> of uh, uh, 7 plus or minus 2, but I never actually have thought I should actually keep count of the number of objects values that I'm working with. Huh, mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And again, it's not it's not a, a it's not an exact thing. It's just a rule of thumb that, you know, I can give people to to guide them towards, you know, doing a little better than they tend to do at the moment. Um so yeah, so that's that's basically the idea behind that. <laughs> 
But what you said reminded me of something else that I actually um, that I also write about in the book, and that this you know that very simple life hack of uh, you know getting away from your chair and do something else, mm-hmm. you know, as a productivity thing. So I I have this routine where I usually go either I go you know for a run um, or I do some other you know physical exercise because that's the only that's the only thing I, I do with my body you know because otherwise I'm just sitting in front of the computer all the time mm-hmm. and and the experience is basically that all the good ideas that I get it's I always get good ideas when I'm away from the computer it's never when I'm at the computer so I think you have to sort of it's like you have to engage with a problem for a certain amount of time by actually you know working with it on the computer but then at that point you're not really making any progress and then you have to go and do something else and then again we come back to this um this notion of the brain still doing a lot of intelligent work even though you're not aware of it working uh, so you know so i get lots of good idea when i go for a run and i think you know rich hickey has a, this um, you know uh, talk where where he talks about hammock driven development i think mm-hmm. he calls it and that's basically the same notion yeah this will be my chance to butcher a foreign name uh, <laughs> uh, the french mathematician Poincaré describes exactly the same thing. His style of thinking was to really immerse himself in a problem and Mm -hmm. then go away from it. And he he has an essay, uh, which I will also put in the show notes, in which he talks about he'd been mulling something over for a long Mm -hmm. time, and then he was stepping onto... I think a streetcar or something, and between mm-hmm. one step and the other, his brain kind of announced, oh, "Here's yep. the solution." Yeah, there are lots of tricks that we could yeah. learn. Do you so, talk? So about- that's not. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go on. Yeah, so it's not a new insight because Poincaré is, is at least a couple of hundred years ago, as as far as I remember, um, but. Um, but I just think it, it reinforces this idea of, you know, the brain is, is actually performing intellectual work, even though you're not aware of it. And, it, and that could explain why you, why you, you know, arrive at insights once you are, you know, doing something else like stepping onto a streetcar or whatever. Yeah, I wonder about, uh, I wonder how it varies by person, because I can mm-hmm. speak for myself. My, my knees are too shot for running, but... Mm-hmm. I don't have insights while walking. Mm-hmm. I do have insights while riding my bicycle. Oh, yeah. And I have no idea why one kind of movement works for me and the other doesn't. Mm. But maybe people need to try different ones. If Yeah, yeah. I think you need to engage in a physical activity that is not too demanding of you. Um, mm at least intellectually demanding. So you probably don't want to engage in, say, fencing or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, w- I fenced once and I don't think... I, I haven't, but uh, I could imagine that you have to be very concentrated to do that. Do, do you have... Do you mention code smells in your book? I probably refer to some of them, I suppose. Um, I actually can't remember... Um, but uh, would be very surprised if I don't. <laughs> I think the the phrase "code smells" was really 
my understanding is it started as a joke. Uh, oh, really? Grandma yeah. Beck's rule for child rearing, if it smells, change it. Uh, <laughs> but I think the idea of smells is really good because smell, I, it seems to me, of all the senses is the one that pretty much most routes around system two. You know, when you smell mm. something bad, mm -hmm. your reaction is instant. Yeah. And I think that's what you're trying to get yourself to. And, and th mm. I think that's a good example of, mm -hmm. uh, I had this, this one amazing uh, experience where I, I had a bunch of Java code and we were in a workshop and I just said, Let, why don't people help me refactor this code? Mm -hmm. And uh, I forget who was there, but like it was Ron Jeffries and J.B. Rainsberger and the guy who wrote NUnit and, and a couple of other people. And just watching how they worked with <laughs> the code, they'd say, well, uh, how about moving this over there? Mm -hmm. And then yeah. uh, and cha look, they kind of look similar now. Maybe you can mm -hmm. extract. And it was they were clearly doing system two. Mm -hmm. things in a system one way, mm. in a way that was reflexive, that yeah. I couldn't really, uh, you know, I couldn't do it. I, I had to think about it. Mm -hmm. They could just perform. Yeah. But it's, it, and this, it, it comes with exercise. Right? So if you, uh, you just have to keep at it for another 20 years, Brian, and then you'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding you. Well, I've gotten better at it since then. That was probably around 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, is there, besides your book, do you have any... Any recommendations for what people should look into, books to read? I sort of sprang this on you without warning, sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so Blindside and, and is, is really a fantastic book, and the, uh, and the sequel, uh, you know, Ecopraxia is actually pretty, pretty good as well. It's not quite as good, but it's, it's still, um, still pretty decent. If you want to do something fun with, um, with programming, and I think this is this is broad. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful book called Maces for Programmers. I mm. think. Uh, have you heard about that one? I ha I own it and I started working oh, yeah. on it and then got oh, yeah. sidetracked. Yeah. Yeah, it but looks I, like I, a really fun book. I just had a ton of fun with it. So it's it's just it all, so the code examples are all in Ruby. And I didn't know Ruby before I started the book, but you know it's it's you know it's object-oriented enough and so that you mm -hmm. can easily pick it up if you can write something that looks like it. Um, and it's really one of those things where it's just um, it's delightfully unpractical in the sense that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I read an entire book of how to draw algorithms for drawing and solving mazes, and I have no idea why I would ever do that, but it was just so much fun. So, um, so that was a delight. So let's, let's recommend that. I've I been think, thinking of yeah. getting back to that, and, and yeah. this this encourages me. <laughs> well, it's uh, your evening, I guess, going close yeah. to your evening. Close so to, yeah. have a good evening, and I'll have a good afternoon. Yeah, thanks for yeah. Um, thanks for doing this. What follows is Appendix A: Programming Language Geekery. 
I, I had one question. It's kind of a tangent. Uh, when you were talking about reasoning through code by emulation, mm-hmm. you hear Haskell people talking about reasoning algebraically, mm-hmm. where you, you know, you do the equivalent of algebraic simplifications to mm-hmm. understand code, as opposed to running it in your head. Yeah, I know Haskell, but I never. I can't say I ever got to the point where I was doing anything like that. Mm-hmm. Do people actually do that? Do you? Uh, I, I sometimes do that. It's, it's quite... So I've been doing Haskell for seven, eight years now. Um, not full-time, but quite, quite a bit, actually. And I often find myself, you know, when I'm, when I'm wondering if I'm presenting with, with a function that I haven't seen before, what I typically do is I start just looking at the type signature of it and saying, okay, it takes this thing as input and, and these other things, and this is the output. So it, you know, sometimes it's, it seems fairly obvious that there's basically only one way those dots can connect in a pure function in, mm-hmm. such, in such a way that that would actually work. And then you sort of just look at it a little bit. It takes some, it t- takes quite a bit of experience, but in an exercise, but once you sort of get there, you just look at it and you say, yeah, hmm, okay, that, that's, that must, you know, these dots must connect in that way because, uh, you know, the arrows are sort of all pointing in that particular direction, if you will. Um, it doesn't always happen like that. And, you know, Haskell can definitely get very, very cryptic as well. So um, um, not always, but yes, it, it definitely happens to me. And it happens to me more often with Haskell than it happens to me with F-sharp, but it happens to me more often with F-sharp than it happens to me with C-sharp. So there's definitely sort of like a gradual process uh, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some truth in it, uh, but then you shouldn't believe everything that Haskell is, uh, say to you because a lot of a lot of it is also, yeah. Um, Aspirational rather than <laughs> let's, let's just leave it at that. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. Uh, that, that's interesting. It brings to mind something that I heard from uh, Dick Gabriel, who is a, a, a Lisp programmer extraordinaire. Um, oh, yeah. And it, I was... The, it's the guy who wrote the... Um, what's it called? The, um, I have it just over Patterns, there, the of, patterns, software. patterns of Software. Yes. Yes, it happens to be mm-hmm. the top book on my pyramid of books it's, that is right. the logo. Yes, yes. Um, but I was a C programmer at mm-hmm. that time, and I was used to reading code basically linearly. Mm-hmm. And he talked about he he said that's not the way a Lisp hacker reads code. Mm-hmm. He said you look for the densest part of the code, which is kind of like the most indented part, hmm. and then you read that and refer upwards in the code mm-hmm. to see the context for that code. And ever since then, I've been sort of intrigued by the idea of whether different languages have different natural code reading styles. I've never done anything with that thought, but maybe somebody out there will. That's, yes, I don't know too much about that either, but it's, it's, uh, it does sound plausible in the sense that, you know, for example, if Sharp, if you ever looked at if Sharp code, if Sharp has this funny, um, actually very nice feature where you can't refer to something unless it's already defined, which, Mm -hmm. and that prevents a lot of circular dependencies, but it has this, 
um, side effect, if you will, that you sort of have to re if you want to start with the most most abstract things in F sharp, and you want if you want to get the big picture first, you have to start from the from the end, mm -hmm. Be because the end is the most abstract things, and the beginning is the most concrete things. It's sort of like it's. It's the other way around. That I think it was Robert C. Martin who once had this idea that we should write code just like journalists write, you know, articles where you should start with the, you should you shouldn't bury the lead. You know, you should start with right. the most important things first, and then you should get more and more details so that an editor can always throw away the the, the details if they run out of space. And I think that's actually a pretty good. Um, it sounds like a good organizing principle for for code, but you can't do that in F sharp. It just forces you to basically flip those things around. So if you're used to writing, if you're used to reading a lot of F sharp code, you know that you have to start from the end of and then go the other way around, which at least makes a little bit of a difference there, just as you pointed out. That's actually something that I really like about Haskell mm -hmm. is the where you say definition of a function is this string of symbols yeah. where subsidiary definitions are mm -hmm. below that. So that it's the same principle, except they put the, the densest part at the top. And I think that given the way we read, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Haskell, you can sort of choose whether you want to do one or the other. It's it you know it, it's more F sharp that is a little bit more you know opinionated on on that uh, on that part. But 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 it reminds me of something else you said earlier on uh, when you made the jump from uh, you know keeping track of state and then you started talking about Haskell because one of the things I really write, like about you know functional programming in general, pure functions have this uh, wonderful uh, quality that you don't have to keep track of state. So, you know, I talked about before that, you know, keeping track of state when you are trying to interpret and understand what code does, that actually detect taxes your short-term memory quite a bit. But with immutable data and pure functions, there's no state that ever changes. It's just input that turns into output. So mm -hmm. there's less, you know, um, load on your short-term memory, if you will. And then there's this other wonderful thing, uh, that is that a pure function is... You, you know this um, uh, terminology called referential transparency. So I know that you know what that is, but you know, mm -hmm. just for the sake of the listeners, we should probably say referential transparency is basically what it means that you don't have to actually execute the function if you already have the result. The result is just as good as executing the function because the only thing the function does is it produces the result and it's deterministic, so it's always going to produce the same result. Uh, and that means... If you are sitting there and you're trying to get a, a, a big picture overview of you know how various different pure functions are composed, you don't have to understand the details of how each of the smaller functions actually arrive at the conclusions that they arrive at. You can just look at the, the values that they produce and say, oh, I understand that this value is combined with this value and is combined with that value, and that gives you the big picture of things. Uh, and then you can always worry about the details if you decide that you need to worry about the details, but you, you have this very nice um, uh, decoupling of, uh, you know, you, can't, you don't have to un always understand the details in order to be able to understand the big picture and the other way around. These things are very well isolated from each other. Uh, so that's also one of the reasons why I love functional programming so much, because my brain is not, you know, powerful enough to keep track of, you know, a lot of state. Uh, so mm -hmm. FP just, you know, makes a lot of that stuff go away. 
Yeah, it occurs to me that I'm really fond of pipeline-style programming, mm -hmm. which yeah. seems to be more encouraged in, say, Elm than seems to be less popular in Haskell, at least from what I've mm -hmm. seen. But yeah. the idea that you just have a pipeline, input flows into first segment of pipeline, output flows into, output comes out and goes yeah. into the next segment of the pipeline. Yeah. And there are all sorts of nice, cute things you can do with that. Mm -hmm. But it occurs to me that really the nice thing about this kind of pipeline-oriented programming is the existence of the pipeline is a signal at this point that input that was occupying a slot in your short-term memory can now be thrown away because it's, yes. it cannot anymore be relevant to any more of the computation. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it, yeah.